Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday. It happens one week before we celebrate the hope of Jesus on Easter Sunday. Palm Sunday is celebrated because it's the day that marks the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the crowds come and they worship him for being the Messiah, for being the Christ. One scripture account that we have of this is Mark chapter 11, verse 7. It says this, When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is the triumphal entry. This is Palm Sunday. And, and it's a bit of a strange, a strange scene, especially when you're approaching it from our context, because we lose sight of what all the imagery represents. But for those there, for those that are there watching this, this whole scene is just loaded with imagery that the people would recognize. Like Jesus coming into Jerusalem from the direction he was coming in. Jesus actually riding on a donkey. Um, that's weird to us, but that's something, well, I mean, we've heard people riding on donkeys, but we don't like, why is that significant? It's because kings rode in on donkeys, and you would think it'd be war horses. But in this culture and custom, it was riding on a donkey. And so he's coming in from this direction into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, and especially after the past three years of ministry, I mean, compiling a resume of all the miracles, all the works, all these miraculous events. And for the past three years, people are wondering, is he or is he not the Christ? Is he or is he not the Messiah? Is he or is he not the King of Israel, the one we've been waiting for, the one we've been longing for, the one we've been looking forward to seeing? And so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and really kind of enacts this imagery, or rather fulfills this imagery, Jesus is emphatically declaring, I am. I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the King of Israel. The people knew the prophecies, they saw them being fulfilled in Jesus. And so the people respond as such, right? It's festive, celebratory, they're worshiping Him. They, they're, they're, like, they're having the party because they believe Jesus is coming to initiate the Kingdom of Israel that's going to take on Rome. In their minds, that was what the Christ would do. In their minds, like, this is going to be, the, the Messiah is going to lead the revolt against Rome, and we're going to be free, we're going to be, you know, have the land that we've always wanted to have. And so in their mind, the Messiah would give them the lives they've been dreaming about. It would, would, would give them everything that they had hoped for. If you've been with us on Palm Sunday in years past, we've done a little bit of deep dive into this text and really looked in at, on the word Hosanna and how that's kind of a loaded political term even, because like, it, was, it was almost a war cry. There were some groups within Israel that, that used it as such, as almost a war cry. It means save us, uh, save us from our oppression, save us from our, our, our abuse, save us from our shame, from being under the boot of Rome. Because when they see Jesus coming into, into town as Messiah, they praise him for it because in their minds, that's what the Messiah will do. For them, it was time to party. For Jesus, tragic. It's tragic. He knew they were missing it. He knew they were missing out on who he was and what he had come to do. And in Luke 19, which is another account of the triumphal entry, we see and, and hear of Jesus's reaction to the moment. And in Luke 19, it says this, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. 
Jesus was coming to save them, right? He was, he was proclaiming and demonstrating the hope of the kingdom of God, but it wasn't going to look, act, or operate the way that the people prescribed that it should. Because for the people, they thought their most pressing need was peace. They, they, they thought the Messiah would bring that for them. In their minds, their most pressing need was liberation. Revolution against Rome. Here in that, the ability to be self-determining. Maybe the ability to have a certain financial status, maybe a certain life of comfort, a certain life of, of, of safety. They thought that was their most pressing need. That would, bring, that would be what would bring them peace. And so much so that really a few decades after Jesus' earthly ministry, they try to take it by force themselves. And Rome responds, violently puts down the revolt. Uh, so much so to where they don't even leave one stone on top of another. And it fulfills the prediction that Christ made as he approaches Jerusalem. They thought that revolution was their most pressing need. And with that, really a life of comfort, a life of ease, a life of security. That's what their hope, desire was. And sometimes that can be ours as well. Maybe not the revolt against Rome, but maybe the, you know, a life of comfort, a life of ease, a life of stability. So many times we can believe that's our most pressing need as well. But it's not what will save us. It's not what will save us. And, and, and these people in this context were making the same mistake. They were worshiping a version of Jesus. Make no mistake, they were worshiping a version of Jesus, but it wasn't the true version of Jesus. It was what they had conjured up. And, and, and Jesus knows they missed it. They, he knows they were missing him and what he was coming to do, and so he weeps. It begs the question for you and for me. What version of Jesus are we worshiping? Is it the true version of Jesus that we see revealed in Scripture, or is it one that we've conjured up and projected on to him? What version of Jesus do you worship this Easter season? In Matthew 26, it's been a week since the triumphal entry. So it's been a week since the crowds praised and worshiped Jesus. It's been a week since they projected onto Jesus what type of Savior he should be, what type of hopes he should bring, what type of kingdom he should initiate. But now in the upper room, it's just the disciples and Jesus, and the disciples are quickly learning this isn't going to go down the way that we thought it would. This isn't going to go down the way, the, the way that we had hoped. Now, Jesus had, had talked before about his, his, his arrest, his crucifixion, and his death. So they knew that was a distinct possibility, um, and, they, and they even feared coming to Jerusalem because of it. They had heard the rumors, heard the plots that, 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 that they were going to kill Jesus, but yet somehow they're still holding out hope. Still holding, uh, still that somehow, some way, Jesus is going to live, establish this kingdom that they're thinking about, and then they would be well positioned with power and privilege in this new kingdom. And so Jesus, in this upper room with his disciples, always teaching, goes to really enact another picture that will show the measure of his sacrifice. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 30, we see Jesus do this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine through, uh, through his, uh, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He takes the bread, breaks it, and passes it among them. Takes the cup, drinks from it, and passes it among them as well. And he gives to them this meal that is communion. 
But with this, he's telling them, he's showing them, teaching them what it is that he's going to do. And it's, it's, when Jesus is doing this, it's, hey, Peter, James, John, hey, Judas, there's going to be a sacrifice, and I'm going to make it. This is happening of my own free will. This is happening from my own determination. I'm going to giving myself. I'm emptying myself. I'm sacrificing myself. Why? For forgiveness of sins. This is not the glory that happens in the kingdoms of men, right? This, this isn't the power move that maybe they were looking for or hoping for. This isn't Jesus establishing dominance and authority and hierarchy in the way that maybe they were just waiting for him to do. Because Jesus says, hey, I am emptying myself out. I am sacrificing myself. I am shedding my blood for the forgiveness of sins. There's liberation, but it's not from Rome. It's from the powers and principalities of darkness. There's rescue, but it's not from Caesar. It's from their sin. There's salvation, but it's not from financial oppression and abuse. It's from the poverty of the soul. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die on your behalf. On your behalf. Because your sins require it. And because of his grace his mercy and his love drives him to do such a thing. His grace and mercy, devotion, self-sacrificial love, these are all primary virtues and ethics of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is displaying them all with this act and with this moment. So Jesus gives a picture of the sacrifice and devotion he will make when he gives the ordinance of communion. It was a reminder to these disciples, even in these last hours, really especially in these last hours, that Jesus, he was the, was the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Christ, the Messiah. And he had a cross to bear, and he would bear it fully. Now, if you'll notice, in the last verse that we read in Matthew 26, it said that they sang a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. We learn in week one that communion happens during the time of Passover. And, 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 that communion, and that Jesus gives the ordinance of communion as he's celebrating Passover with the disciples. Now, part of Passover is that they would sing a certain group of, hymn, of psalms known as the Hallel Psalms. Psalms 111 through 117. So when it says he sang a song and they went to the Mount of Olives, we, we know the songs that Jesus and the disciples are singing. And I, I want to draw our attention to one of these psalms, Psalms 116. And, and as, we, as we read this psalm, just be mindful that what's, ha- what's about to happen, right? Jesus is leaving the upper room. He's going to the place where he's going to be arrested. And, and the process of the crucifixion is going to begin. And these are the words that, that Jesus is singing, that Jesus is speaking with his disciples. Psalm 116. A bit of a read, but hang with me. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangle me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death. My eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I trusted the Lord when I said, I am greatly afflicted. In my alarm, I said, everyone is a liar. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. 
I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. It's a psalm of praise, it's a psalm of worship to God who is working in and through a servant who is fully aligned with the purposes of God, right? I mean, he's devoted to them. And you'll notice it is not a pleasurable situation, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's not a time of comfort and ease and security. There's hardship, there's sacrifice, death is a likely outcome. Yet we do see in the, in the psalm that the writer's praising God for delivering him from death. But we see in this psalm one that's fully devoted to the purposes of God regardless of the outcome. And, and I, I just, it's, it's poignant and powerful to me that this is on, on, on the minds of the disciples and of Christ as, as he leaves the upper room, as he heads to the place where he's going to be arrested, beaten, flogged, and crucified. It's, it's not without hard verses, right? I mean, like, uh, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. I mean, that's not like God saying, oh, good, a servant died today. He suffered an agony. It's, it's, it's not that. It's not that God delights in death, but rather he delights in his servants who are faithful to him, no matter the cost, no matter the outcome, no matter the consequence. God delights in, in, in faith being expressed in that way. And so it's, it's in, maybe, I, maybe I'm alone in this, but it's encouraging to me to think that these words were perhaps encouraging Christ as he took up the work that God had given him to do, as he goes to be the sacrifice for our sins. And in Mark chapter 15, we see Jesus becoming the sacrifice that he pictured in communion. Mark chapter 15, verse 33, we read this. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. He's faithful to do the work that God had given him to do. He finishes the work completely. He becomes the sacrifice for our sins, the wages of our sins, right? The wages of your sin, the wages of my sin. Scripture lets us know the wages of our sin is death. And Jesus, compelled by love for his father, compelled by love for his father's family, you and me, pays that debt in full, allows his body to be broken open, his blood to pour forth, his life to be taken. And with the resurrection, him conquering the grave shows how that act, that sacrificial act, liberates, redeems, and rescues all who believe in him and trust in that redemptive work. Yet so often, and this is where this sermon is headed, so often the broken, bloodied, and lifeless Jesus is just not part of the version of Jesus we worship. Like we, we mentioned the cross and we talk about the cross, we're grateful for it. But, but, but so often, like we mention the cross, and then very quick, we try to get to the resurrection. We try to get to the victory and the glory that Christ experiences. And, and to be sure, those are part of the Jesus that, that we worship as well. Don't hear me minimizing that or downplaying it. We're going to make a big deal of that next week in Easter. But, but so often, when we, when we skip quickly over the cross to the resurrection, we can run the risk of, of downplaying, skipping over, minimizing this broken, abused, and humiliated Jesus. Because make no mistake, I mean, that's what's happening, right? He's, 
He's hung naked on a cross between two common criminals. And it looks like it's just an ordinary Roman crucifixion, but we know this is anything other than ordinary, right? This is divinely orchestrated, divinely, um, d- d- divinely established because it was accomplishing divine purposes, right? Jesus giving his body, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sins. He is expressing the self-sacrificial love that's part of the kingdom of God and, and, that, and, and that he's doing whatever it takes to achieve the purposes of God, right? He's sacrificing himself for the forgiveness of sins to achieve this work in God's kingdom. And so here's the question then, in light of everything that we've covered, okay, if our Savior, if our Master, if our Christ, the one that we say we follow, the one that we say uh, we want to grow in our Christ-likeness of, right, we want to grow in His image, if He was one that experienced this type of suffering and hardship, why, why would we ever think that a life of faith should be free of hardship, suffering, and difficulty? We might not ever say it like that, that my life should be free of hardship and difficulty, but there's so many times, so many times where we, where we actually even treat faith as a conduit for all these other things. Well, like we might not be, you know, in this context, they're longing for the overthrow of Rome. We're not looking for that, right? But so often, maybe we think our most pressing needs might be safety, might be comfort, maybe self-actualization, that I, like, that I have the life that I'm dreaming about, I have everything that I'm looking for, everything that I'm longing for. And so often we use faith to be the thing to get us the job. We use faith to be the thing to give me the, the healthy marriage. We use faith to give us the thing that's where our kids are rock stars or sports stars or brilliant geniuses, whatever you want, right? So we use faith to get us this, and, 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 and right, what is that? That's idolatry, we've talked about that before. When we're using faith to get us something more, we're seeming this more than we are Christ. But, but when we do that, we deceive ourselves in thinking that faith is a pathway to those things. When in reality, we're coming back and we're like, wait, no, I'm following Christ. I want to grow in my Christ likeness. And if we treat faith as a pathway to this, we're overlooking and downplaying the brokenness of Christ on the cross and how he commands us all to pick up our cross and come after him. Matthew 16, 24 and 25, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save, uh, save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You see, this is one final reminder of communion, one final charge that we experience in communion, because communion is not only a reminder of the cross that Christ bore, it's a reminder of the cross we are to carry as well. And the one that we are carrying, the, the cross that we carry, it's, it's not to earn for ourselves our, 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 our forgiveness of sins, right? It's not to earn for ourselves our salvation, because Christ earned that for us with his cross, right? Our cross that we carry is not to somehow prove ourselves worthy of God's love. No, God proved his love for us and that he he sent Christ to be the sacrifice on the cross for us. No, the cross that you and I carry, the cross that we're to pick up and come after, it's our willingness to proclaim our faith and it is our willingness to live out our life according to the virtues and the ethics of the kingdom of God, whatever the cost. It's our willingness to hold on to biblical conviction regardless of what happens to us, regardless of what society might say, regardless of what our neighbors' rights might say, regardless of maybe even what our own friends and family might say. We are living our life according to the convictions and teachings and wisdoms and commands that God has given us in His Word. That's that's the cross that we pick up. That's the cross that we bear as we come after Christ. And with that, we know a life of faith, it's not a life that's free of trouble, heartache, and sacrifice, but no, a life of faith is a life that is so consumed with the redemptive purposes of God that you're willing to leave sanctuary and safety to carry the hope of the gospel into places of brokenness and darkness. 
And so communion reminds us of how Christ did that for us on the cross and how now we too are to pick up our cross and come after him.